0: Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. On this episode, we're going to talk about the boulevard of broken dreams, learning from past mistakes to support transformative innovation, and it's based on the work of our guest, Josh Lerner, Professor of Investment Banking at Harvard Business School. Welcome, Josh, and please tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation, and I'm really delighted to uh, be here and talk about uh, these issues. Uh, I've been at Harvard Business School for a long time and really have been throughout the period hovering on the intersection of uh, entrepreneurship and finance. So much of the work I've done has been about uh, venture capital and private equity organizations. And clearly, there's been enormous public policy interest in this area, particularly in the period after the global financial crisis, but really beginning well before. This has been both fascinating in terms of a research side as well as getting a chance to, you know, visit a number of countries, engage with policymakers about these issues and and so forth.
0: Sounds excellent. So this episode is based uh, this time on his book, The Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which we warmly recommend to everyone. Uh, where he goes through um, the history and the track record of uh, governments that government attempts to support entrepreneurship, uh, what has gone well and what has gone wrong. Today, we will talk about the rationale for uh, supporting entrepreneurs directly and supporting innovation directly. We will talk about uh, finance and venture capital and the role of government in that. But first of all, Professor Lerner, tell us a bit about how you became interested in economics and entrepreneurship in particular, and what prompted you to, uh, to to write this book?
1: Well, I think that, you know, my interest in um, entrepreneurship really sprung from having uh, my early experiences. I had originally studied physics in college and then got interested in innovation policy and some of the issues around that. And my first job after college was working with an uh, organization called the Brookings Institution as a uh, research associate where I was working with a number of people dealing with issues around science and innovation policy. And it was a time of uh, a lot of excitement and interest. There was a lot of concern about U.S. competitiveness. In those days, it was more worrying about Japan than China. But many of the same issues that we hear today were raised. There had been a number of innovative programs put in place. The Bayh-Dole Act, which tried to encourage technology transfer from universities The small business innovation research program, which essentially tried to encourage small businesses to commercialize early stage science and so forth. And, you know, it was really challenging to try to get a fix on and try to evaluate some of these, uh, some of these efforts. One of the things that sort of made it complicated was the fact that we knew so little about how even the private sector worked in terms of funding innovative companies, much less how government programs Should work in that context. And that got me, got me the bug around these issues. And I am afraid I have pretty much been on the uh, uh, same topic all these years later. And obviously there's been an enormous amount of evolution in terms of entrepreneurship and clearly the role of entrepreneurship in the global economy has become, you know, much larger. But it's also the case that the policy interest in this area has exploded as well.
0: Thank you. Well, I have to admit I have a similar background as well. One of the things I'm wondering about is why are we understanding so little about entrepreneurs? You can mm-hmm. go out and ask them, and it makes mm-hmm. me think that it might be more about um, political incentives and the kind of concerns mm-hmm. that that you would find in a public choice school or in uh, – in uh, new institutional economics. It might not be as much that the knowledge is is not out there. It might be that uh, the incentive is not there uh, to do it. The incentive structure is not set up that way.
1: Well, it's a great question. And, um, you know, for the last two decades or so, I've been organizing a working group around entrepreneurship at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And in some sense, the study of the at least the economics of entrepreneurship is pretty old, right? It goes back to Knight, Frank Knight and uh, Joseph Schumpeter. But in a lot of ways, it was, you know, many of the last decades of the um, 20th century, a bit of an intellectual backwater. And I think when you think about why that is, there are a couple reasons. I mean, clearly one is that a lot of the theory in, in that era was sort of predicated under some sort of general equilibrium framework where you wouldn't have, Really profits or, you know, it would just be complete perfect markets and so forth, which obviously is an area where there's been a lot of innovation in terms of theory in recent, recent years. You know, another issue was data, right? That you essentially had, you know, when you certainly look at many of the major economics journals at the articles that they published in the eighties and nineties with entrepreneurship in the title, they were almost all about self employment, uh, you know, which used tax records from People who were essentially self-employed and the, the, the challenge there is that self-employment is interesting, but it's very different from creating a high potential growth company. But there really was just very difficult to get data on these things. And in the last couple decades, we've seen more theoretical frameworks that can sort of accommodate some of the, this kind of disequilibrium. We've seen an explosion of data availability, you know, with uh, just all the new data sets, you know, both here in the U.S. as well as in especially in Scandinavia. We've seen also just a lot more people doing research in this area because they're teaching entrepreneurship. You know, in the old days, in most business schools, the people teaching entrepreneurship were old entrepreneurs who told stories but didn't do research. And today we certainly have practitioners, but we also have a bunch of young, you know, research trained people doing Uh, doing work in this area as well, which has had a a very positive effect as well.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a a positive development. And I I remember, just as an aside, reading a a biography of Alfred Marshall. And before, the role of the company has been seen as basically a black box that allocates resources uh, Mm -hmm. on average, optimally. Of course, in reality, Mm -hmm. not. But it was never seriously questioned. And, uh, then he traveled from New York, uh, to the West. He saw the Wild West. He saw everyone scurrying about, trying to do something, trying to come up with new ideas. And that's what's triggered his insights, which then in principles of economics and foreshadowed Schumpeter. Mm-hmm. So it was there all the time. The problem is more, it's so difficult to generalize in any way that you can say as uh, serious scientific. As you say, there are all kinds of entrepreneurship from Right, uh, you know, self-employment, necessity, entrepreneurship, all the way to what we now called innovative, high-growth enterprises. We just mm-hmm. wrote, we just wrote a book about that. It's hard to generalize in a way that's scientific, but there's a lot that you can do to bring a more sort of anthropological thick understanding of how they work and the incentives that they work and where exactly in the process, it's important to intervene.
1: I would say that, you know, certainly the aspect of saying there's a lot of things under the box of entrepreneurship is absolutely there. And I think one really needs to be careful just to really look at what set of entrepreneurs you're looking at. At the same time, you know, it seems clear that a lot of what research has done has been to sort of take deep dives on certain aspects, right? So clearly venture-backed entrepreneurship, the phenomenon of venture capital has gotten an enormous amount of attention. There's been a lot of attention to family businesses and so forth. But I think the main thing is to be careful of who you're looking at and make sure that one doesn't have this apples and oranges problem where you're mixing all these different kinds of businesses together.
0: Yeah, sort of like when we talk about the service sector, it was right. basically an artificial construction from the from the 30s when the service sector was really was really small. But of course, you can't compare house cleaning and wholesale finance. Right. So you start in your book with a discussion of uh, the global financial crisis, but also the example of heavy government involvement that, that succeeded, uh, such as Dubai, uh, Silicon Valley, Singapore, and China, and mm-hmm one of my favorites is actually Estonia talk a little yeah. bit about what uh, what we could learn from those experiences the ones the ones that you want not not all of them
1: yeah absolutely so i think that certainly one of the things that we see is that entrepreneurship can have an enormously positive effect on economies right and we can see that in many different ways we can certainly see it on a global scale in the sense that today over the last few years, depending on when you look, somewhere between six and eight of the ten most valuable companies in the world have been companies that were originally entrepreneurial businesses funded by venture capitalists and so forth. You can see that looking again in aggregate at the United States. So for instance, if you look at companies that are publicly traded that have gone the new publicly traded companies, the ones who've gone public over the last twenty-five years, you see that uh venture-backed companies have are, are somewhere on the order of half the market capitalization and 90% of the R&D being done. So entrepreneurship is clearly playing a very important kind of role. But I think, as you're pointing out, where you see even more dramatic effects is when you look at places which didn't have entrepreneurship and then got it, in many cases, due to policies. And I think probably the the most dramatic example you know, along these lines, and we could, as you already alluded to several, but would be Israel, right? Where there'd certainly been efforts in the seventies and eighties to try to promote entrepreneurship that weren't terribly successful. But in the early 1990s, the Israelis really came up with a formula that proved to be highly successful and emulated many other places, which is called the Yozma program, which essentially provided matching funds to investors who wanted to put money into Israeli entrepreneurs with essentially a relatively small amount of money, you know, somewhere on the order of $80 million, which ended up being repaid with interest to the government. They ended up catalyzing what on a per capita basis is the largest venture capital hub in the world, which... Tel Aviv in many cases has been ranked even on an absolute basis as one of the, you know, major venture hubs alongside San Francisco, New York, uh, London and so uh, Shanghai and so forth. You know, here was a case of a relatively small public intervention that not only ended up paying for itself, generating a very substantial export sector, probably contributed quite a lot to Israeli soft power, right? In terms of becoming a place where Japanese, Chinese, Taiwanese investors, whoever, wanted to come and put – U.S. investors wanted to put capital into, which really ended up having a very profound effect on the Israeli economy as well. So I think that that example is, in a way, along with perhaps Estonia, uh, you know, a sort of illustration of essentially going from a very modest base in terms of entrepreneurial activity to something much more substantial in a very short period of time. With the help of enlightened government policy.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I visited Israel, uh, several times and, and, and tried to figure, try to figure this out because on, on paper, um, it was basically socialist up until the early. It's right. called kibbutzim, kibbutzim yeah. socialism. It was completely isolated. Uh, it had arid land, but it had, first of all, a lot of research, um, in the defense area, which turned out to have um, civilian, yeah. uh, so sort of a similar effect as in as in, as in DARPA, uh, they had high levels of uh, high levels of education. They invested a lot in research uh, on agricultural productivity because they were isolated from uh, from from the neighbors, and that created a certain critical mass of knowledge that could be commercialized outside of Israel, and that then in turn started a certain dynamism that, like in Silicon Valley, even when defense spending uh slowed down, kept up, uh, and even keeping up now when you have to pay a 22-year-old software engineer some of the highest salaries in the world, it still manages to be competitive. So it's 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 an interesting story, and it's it's sort of a dynamic that uh, we here in Europe would love to right. recreate in some way. I'm going to talk about first the rationale, and then what you find in your review of entrepreneurship support. Uh, You framed this, uh, and I like this framing, as the critical challenge of contrasting Jamaica and Singapore, Mm -hmm. so both cases of uh, relatively heavy state intervention, one very successful and and one Mm -hmm. not. Could you just say a few sentences to frame the discussion, and then we'll start talking about the, the rationale?
1: Yeah, well, the interesting contrast here is that both nations, you know, essentially got independence from Britain about the same time in the, um, you know, six decades or so ago. And at the time, you know, Jamaica was actually a wealthier country than Singapore on a per capita basis, which is clearly sort of shocking when you go and visit the, uh, uh, the two places now. And when you ask why was that? Well, it's probably a complicated, uh, story with a lot of different things that anthropologists, sociologists, political scientists, and so forth, would all point to as contributing factors. But clearly one of those aspects really was the uh, role of public policy, that the Singaporean government had a pretty obsessive focus with creating an environment which was attractive for businesses of all kinds, but increasing emphasis on being attractive for entrepreneurship. And, you know, there was an enormous amount of effort spent on what I call setting the table or creating this conducive set of conditions for entrepreneurs to thrive. On the other hand, Jamaica was, you know, heavily characterized by state intervention, not really with the eye towards uh boosting uh private sector activity, but if anything, nationalizing industries and the like. And, you know, we could, you know, go, sort of go through the sort of sad history of policy interventions in Jamaica. But clearly, in a lot of ways, it was uh, ill-informed, you know, you know, somewhat Marxist-inspired series of interventions that really deterred businesses in general, but particularly deterred entrepreneurs who were interested in doing stuff. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of very creative Jamaicans who were interested in doing entrepreneurship. It's just that they ended up, in most parts, doing the entrepreneurship in places like the United States and Canada.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting contrast. And in fact, something I would recommend to listeners is work by Peter Blair Hendry at uh, at Stanford University. He did a study, I think it was called The Tale of Two Islands, comparing Barbados and Jamaica, who to an even higher extent started out in the same position but went in completely different directions. And especially the the role of state ownership of assets, not only ownership but also control of assets, Uh, I think it's one of the factors that ended up being destructive. Also, of course, in the UK, if you compare different ways that, uh, that uh, European countries built up their welfare states in the UK, it was focused on nationalization. And, uh, that's what led to the crisis in the seventies and to a certain colorful lady trying to clean it up as we all, as we all know. So let's talk first now about why public support Make sense for innovative entrepreneurship uh, in general. You you go through mm-hmm. some of the standard yeah. arguments that might be worth uh, repeating for um, our non-specialist audience, mm-hmm. and you also have some uh, some thoughts on of your own. Yeah. Why and when exactly is it important to not only build a good business environment, but to actually directly uh, support and play it a catalytic role? Um, in entrepreneurship?
1: Well, it's it's a great question. And clearly, one of the issues that's out there is that many startup businesses are innovative. Why are they innovative Because or focused on developing new products and processes? That's, of course, because that's where they have a competitive advantage, right? That going and starting a search business today and going head-to-head against Google with their tens of thousands of brilliant programmers and Probably billions of lines of software code is probably going to be uh, a losing battle. But the idea is to say, can we figure out some segment of the market, which is newer, more dynamic and, you know, make our stand there and hopefully get the sort of first mover advantage. So in a way, encouraging innovation is extremely important. And one thing we know about innovation is that it tends to be uh, what economists will often call public good, which is to say, if you come up with the idea for something new, particularly if it's something really basic or you choose like uh, cryptocurrency not to protect it with a patent but instead you know just making it open source, it is something that ends up benefiting lots of different people and the question is how do you incentivize people to do that public good in the first place? So certainly one argument for trying to encourage, entrepreneurship and innovative entrepreneurship is to say, let's subsidize this early stage kind of activity because there's almost by definition going to be a lot of spillovers, which we want, but which it's going to be hard to make people do things that are just simply for the good of humanity. There's always going to be a few who are going to do that, but people tend to be a little bit selfish in terms of wanting to do stuff, all things being equal, which benefits themselves. Another consideration is what I call the increasing returns nature of entrepreneurial activity, which is to say that in some sense, if you're going and starting a business to, let's say, do wind power using some novel technology, it's a lot easier starting it in a place where there are already a bunch of entrepreneurs and companies doing stuff in this area. You say, why is that? Well, a lot of it comes to the fact that you're going to need to raise financing from angels or venture investors. And particularly at the early stages, people like to invest locally. You're going to need help from lawyers and structuring deals, for instance, with larger firms and so forth. And having the uh, legal expertise to, to do this would be important. You're going to need to hire people, right, and to hire People, you're going to need skilled people who are willing, experienced people who are willing to work for you. So having a pool of people who have worked in this industry are familiar with the entrepreneurial process and so forth is a huge source of advantage as well. So all these considerations lead to a tendency to have this sort of increasing returns nature. I mean, we know that in the US, you know, essentially three urban areas account for you know, depending on how you measure it, 60, 70% of the pool of venture capital financing that's out there, and similarly, a very large share of high potential entrepreneurship taking place, and if we look around the world, as various compilations by people like Richard Florida have done, you know, we see that there are a relatively small number of cities, and we've already mentioned a few of them, and we could add a few more to the list, who account for the very considerable number of a share of high potential entrepreneurship taking place around the globe. And again, is is that because the only smart people are sitting in London or Berlin or Shanghai or San Francisco or New York? Obviously not. Right. It's much more a matter that people come up with ideas in lots of different places, but they realize that they're likely to be more successful in a place where there's lots of other entrepreneurs, financiers and other kinds of expertise. So, I mean, the way I like to say it is that, yes, there have certainly been a lot of policy initiatives that have been undertaken to boost uh, venture capital and entrepreneurship that haven't really led to anything. But if you look at almost all the places that have emerged as hubs of this activity, including Silicon Valley, you see that there was the sort of strong hand of the public sector in the early days in terms of coalescing a lot of the activity that was there. So I guess I would say that both the you know the nature of spillovers as well as the sort of geographic focus of this create sort of strong arguments for public intervention in this in this area.
0: Excellent. Let me comment on that quickly, and then we'll actually speak a little bit about uh, about Silicon Valley and what happened there because it is it is an interesting example. I would add to that that this return or this public good or this social return, as you might call it. Is probably much bigger than we can, than we can measure. It's not only things like in Belarus, for instance, the first company who set up an IT consulting firm for exporting basic programming services had enormous demonstration effects and created mm-hmm. a completely new sector that now employs, uh, or at least stands for something like 10% of exports. So that's an enormous social return on, social return on its own. But I think the the effect that you're talking about is actually much larger. There seems to be something of sort of an atmosphere that was built up in Israel and Silicon mm-hmm. Valley that sort of made it the default, uh, for people to at least systematically explore if there's something, if there's something entrepreneurial that they, uh, that they can do that was sort of almost socially expected. And that's not in the case in other places. And I think that's a, that's a big part of the explanation. Mm-hmm. So let's switch to Silicon Valley. Um, mm-hmm. Some people see it as a haven of uh, liberalism mm-hmm. or uh, libertarianism. At the same time, it's a strong role for government, especially through DARPA and other mm-hmm. defense spending in the, at, the, at the early stage. I think one of the things that strikes me is that DARPA didn't even target civilian use. It just turned mm-hmm. out to be the case, mm-hmm. and it gradually became part of the mandate, but only because it made enormous sense to do so. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit the story about um how Silicon Valley came uh, came about and why it enjoys the kind of dynamism it has today and why it still makes sense to pay enormous salaries just to be there.
1: So it it's a fascinating story and one which could easily absorb the time we have together. Clearly Silicon Valley's creation was in some sense really a function in in many senses of uh public policy and in particular It very much benefited during World War II from the fact that we were fighting a war on two fronts, right? And particularly, we're fighting a war in the Pacific. And there was a sense of saying that our concentration of the defense industrial base on the East Coast was problematic. And that led to a concerted effort to fund a number of the early companies, you know, of which probably – Hewlett Packard was the most uh, famous, but any number of other ones were doing things in the defense industrial base related to the electronics of the day and 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 so forth. It also benefited tremendously from, I, I guess, what I would describe as academic entrepreneurship, you know, which many people credit to uh fellow at Stanford named Frederick Terman, who had the sort of vision that Stanford could anchor a high-tech industrial base in Silicon Valley, which at the time was full of apple orchards and the, and the like. Pretty um, uh, contrarian view at the time, but he ended up being very adept at both marshalling corporate investment as well as continued government investment in many of these uh, Cold Warrior firms you know, doing stuff like developing a sauce scope and the like. So part of it was this public intervention, but there was clearly more to it than that. And I think we could spend a lot of time, you know, debating what was the what was the secret sauce, right? Ron Gilson has argued at length that the you know the importance of non compete agreements in in California, which he attributes to a bit of, you know, almost historical accident uh, ended up being extremely important in the process. Other people have disagreed with that and sort of pointed more to the influence of some of the early venture firms and the sort of culture that they induced there. There's a whole series of uh, explanations that have been offered. And I think, like most things in life, there probably isn't one answer, right? It's a combination of a whole series of factors but which seem to have created this highly efficient environment for developing new ideas, stress testing them, getting resources behind them, and then scaling them up quickly. And that mix of things remains quite rare. So not just simply having the resources to start a business, but then to be able to expand it and be able to get the experienced managers to move it to the next level I think it's a crucial aspect of what makes Silicon Valley today special as well.
0: No, of course, it's going to be impossible to to say exactly what was where where the causality was. There was, of course, a a number of factors. But I would say that it's it was the combination of uh, two factors in particular uh, or three factors. One, of course, is Stanford University and Mm -hmm. the take that they had. Uh, the second was uh, DARPA and the defense industry, and especially the innovative approach that DARPA took to explore technologies that were transformative rather than incremental, to take lots of little bets. Uh, and most of it didn't work. Some of it did work and also turned out to have civilian applications. So there were lots of ideas and technologies that were ready to go. And the third was, of course, that we started learning how to make chips. We started learning how to make, how to make computing. Uh, mm-hmm. more saws so started and then all of the applications that you could do with uh, cheap processing were blooming at the time and they were, they were at the center of it. Does that sound like a reasonable sauce?
1: Yeah. Clearly all those things were certainly important contributors. Some people would argue that, you know, another role of public policy in the process was the antitrust cases around AT&T and, uh, IBM. Right. Which led to, I think, in both cases, the licensing of a lot of the technologies behind the transistor in the case of AT&T. And in the case of IBM, the consent degree that led to the unbundling of computer hardware and software. Right. And you can argue certainly plausibly that in both those cases, the greater availability and access to those technologies Led to an explosion of activity as well, right? That just to point to one of the most obvious examples, the growth of the personal computer and the, the software applications that ran on it, right? Had we lived in a world where hardware and software were still bundled together and where IBM and a few others had massive market share. You can imagine that the proliferation first to mini computers and then to personal computers would have been much slower and the kind of ability of new businesses to spring up to, you know, just work on a application like a spreadsheet or something like that would have been much, uh, much slower.
0: And then, of course, we arrive at the, the first years of the Internet, uh, where um, DARPA had uh, produced some of the enabling technologies. And then maybe a big step was um, President Clinton's, uh, I think it was Telecommunications Act, especially mm-hmm. Section 230. That was basically a kind of permissionless uh, innovation. The field was free. There was uh, mm-hmm. There was no liability constraints. Mm-hmm. And everyone was free to experiment with what you could do. Mm-hmm. With, the, with the internet. Uh, my, my question though is, uh, it seems to me that there was never any deliberate government intervention to support us. There were some, some, some mm-hmm. antitrust cases. Of course, there mm-hmm. was the accident that a lot of defense spending and defense mm-hmm. research, uh, took place there. And in fact, to a significant extent, they have held back development through the extremely tough Zoning regulations in Santa Clara mm-hmm. countries, which now mm-hmm. have driven up house prices, so that there mm-hmm. is a very high threshold before you can even mm-hmm. afford to live there, which should minimize entrepreneurialism, but that has then created spillover effects that appear to be very successful, and some vibrant hubs have come up in other places in the u s mm-hmm. uh, right. such as austin
1: absolutely and I, I think that the combination of what you call the disincentives of Silicon Valley, you know, the, the crazy costs of housing, you know, just the hassle factor of traffic and living there and so forth, you know, combined with the, in in some sense, what we can call the death of distance, right, the sort of ability of us to chat over teams or groups to work in any number of settings, have, in some sense, made it much easier to not only have individual workers be scattered over the place, but also to start businesses in other places. And, you know, one can see that the, you know, the venture industry is adjusting accordingly. When you think back two decades ago, a lot of firms had the ethos that I don't want to invest anywhere beyond a 45-minute drive from my offices in Sandhill Road. Today, obviously, they're not only much more willing to get on a plane to India, but also to um, look much more broadly in the United States. And certainly you can say a place like Miami perhaps doesn't have the density of activity or density of, density of entrepreneurship or venture capitalists than Silicon Valley. But clearly it's very attractive along a number of dimensions and the costs of distance seem to have become much lower.
0: At the same time, of course, we talk a lot about the death of distance, but to a significant extent, it hasn't really played out. Um, yeah. So, for instance, uh, wholesale financial um, services in London and here in Geneva, they stay here despite being some of the most expensive places in the world. And if you look at what they outsource, it's uh things like retail banking, processing, uh, things like that. So it still seems to be very important that you are able to speak to people face-to-face, to interact with them, because... Ideas come up and you have a drink together or in all kinds of circumstances and when you trust each other and create some kind of what Jason Potts called innovation commons. So it's still it's still important. So let's uh, move on to the next section about learning from mistakes, uh, which is the, the the core of your book. What are the most important open questions in the study of entrepreneurship that uh, you think we need to know more about and uh, absence of knowledge or understanding of which have led to mistakes in the cases that you review?
1: Well, I think that certainly one thing that's important to emphasize is that this is not an activity that one can do with a great deal of certainty, that uncertainty is part and parcel of the process, right? That even when you look at the you know the most famous venture firms the sequoias or kleiner perkinses of the world you see that their portfolios are littered with failures in terms of companies they funded which they either lost all their money on or a significant fraction of it and they're not bothered by that right they they understand that that's part and parcel of the territory in which they're they're operating But it often can be difficult for public policy, where often failure is seen as uh, something that's deeply problematic, which makes this challenging. Another aspect that introduces a lot of fundamental challenges is the time frame that it takes to figure out whether this thing is working or not. right? And we can all think about examples of countries that set up pretty thoughtful programs often right before a presidential election or the like and then 9 or 12 months or 18 months later got rid of it on the grounds that it wasn't yielding returns when in point of fact it often takes many years often decades to really see the the fruits of one's labor in there right which is often you know very hard to reconcile with the political cycles in democracies which are often in two or four or five or six year time periods. So these considerations combine to lead to a situation where you end up often with two sets of problems rearing their heads. One of which is what I call will intentioned mistakes, by which I mean people sitting in parliament with the best of intentions who either don't understand how long it's going to take, can't stomach the fact that there might be early failures, or else put in a set of requirements that end up being deeply counterproductive. And we can think about, you know, many examples of policies along these lines where they, not through any evil intent, but just simply from not understanding the way the game is played, yeah, put in requirements that ended up being rather self-defeating. And you know, we can talk about many examples. One of the ones that I uh highlight in the book is the illustration of the Australian government after they did the uh, uh privatization of their large wireless carrier, was very interested in boosting telecom in Australia. And in the course of the political process they ended up adding a requirement that The firms essentially had to have all their jobs in Australia. And essentially, the challenge was that they were basically funding a bunch of telecom companies who were essentially having to have all the programmers making wages that were essentially 10 times higher than their counterpart in Bangalore or the like. Certainly you can understand why a policymaker would might have made that demand, right? Saying we're taking Australian taxpayer money here and we want to make sure that the benefits accrue to Australia, not to India. But the unintended consequence there was that it ended up being creating a bunch of companies that really weren't competitive because they were competing against companies in Silicon Valley or in China or Israel, who were able to outsource or just had much lower costs of labor, and as a result, these companies were really fundamentally uncompetitive in terms of developing you know, their products and the like. So I think that's just one example of many we could point to where you essentially had very well-intentioned people who wanted to do the right thing, but ended up in a situation where they created rules- not understanding what the implications or the unintended consequences would be. The other side of the point is really the problems, you know, which are not from well intentioned, but poorly intentioned, right? Where the problems of political capture that rear their heads, right? Where the government is handing out money and either people within the government or friends of people end up deciding that they would like to get that money and it ends up getting directed in a way that at the best, just waste the money, and in many cases, ends up actually distorting the whole market.
0: Thank you. So many things come to mind. I, I kind of try to bring this together a little bit. I think we're talking about things that stem from, first of all, political incentives, and second, low understanding or low incentives to understand innovation or the entrepreneurial process and, and market dynamics. And we see varieties of these in all the countries that we work on. In fact, we very often see um, programs where the political investment in, in a particular sector, that they will keep subsidizing it because there's a strong political incentive to do it. Uh, another example I found illustrative is um, you talk about Kansas in the 1970s. What happened in Kansas?
1: Well, before we get to Kansas, I think we should spend a moment just underscoring one of the points you raised, which is the importance of. Not just simply designing good policies, but also of being able to declare victory and move on to something else, right? That one of the striking things about the Yozma program in Israel, which I think many people see as the template for policies that took place in, in many other places since was the fact that having done this and having been successful with the first wave of the Yozma program, they largely, government largely declared victory and essentially privatized the program. You know, in the if you look at the contrast in the United States, we set up the small business investment company program after the Sputnik launch in the late 1950s. And that SBIC program is still going on, even though at that point, there was just a thimble full of venture capital. Today, we have, you know, just a huge venture capital industry by any metric, but we still essentially have, the government in the business of lending money to venture capital firm. I think it's fair to say very little sense that this program still exists. I think when you look at the U.S. states, um, there was a book at one point called Labor- Laboratory of Democracy, which argued that you saw a lot of innovation and creativity in terms of what the states did. But it's also fair to say there's a fair amount of mad science going on within the states as well. And, Kansas would certainly be one example, but we can point to Louisiana and Alabama and New Jersey and many other places where you saw the phenomenon of, for instance, people using employee pension funds to promote entrepreneurial businesses, many of which in many cases have tended to be politically connected ones in a way that certainly didn't serve the interest of the retirees and in many cases also was harmful to the taxpayers. So I think that that phenomenon of capture, while certainly not unique to the United States, uh, is certainly, we can see many examples within the states of those kind of dynamics.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. In, in general, institutions perpetuate themselves. But we see that as well, both at the individual um, project level and at the institutional level.
1: Yeah, I've certainly seen and public programs where they have, Come in, and you come in and visit them, and say we got 20 startups, and none of them have failed here. And I'm always like, well, in actuality, I I can almost certainly predict that 15 of them are failures. It's just that you're continuing to fund them. But a lot of the public discourse can be such that it's difficult to say things fail, as opposed to saying, oh, that's part and parcel of the territory.
0: No, it's it's hard to explain. Another phenomenon we see is that in many of our countries. We have these buildings, and they're flashy, and they have all of these uh, English language clichés on them: cooperate, teamwork, spirit, incubate. And they call them incubator, accelerator, tech park. It's, it's all means the same thing. And then you you start talking to the companies, and it turns out they do things like network administration, and the, so it might also be that they're picking companies that are not very risky and not very innovative, and then they can say, look how successful the all all over. Whereas in fact, uh, to some extent, the degree of failure should actually be a measure of how well they are actually trying to support high risk and play a catalytic role. Let's move to um, your point about the neglected art of setting the table. I like to think of the global financial crisis being a result of government oversetting the table. Uh, Lots of delicious stuff and no entry fees. And then expecting bankers to hold back and go on a diet, which of course, which of course they didn't. So there we always set the table. How do we set the right table and why is it a neglected art?
1: It's, it's a great question, right? Because you, you also see the same phenomenon in entrepreneurial settings. I, I talk in the, in the book a little bit about the labor fund program in Canada. I think subsequently you could look at the government guidance funds in China and so forth, where The conclusion is that venture activity is a good thing. So if we just make enough of it, it's going to be more of it is going to be even better. right? And of course, you can get into overheating and all sorts of distortions in the market as a result. But at the same time, really creating an environment which is conducive to entrepreneurs underscores how important that table setting process is of creating an environment which is an attractive one to be an entrepreneur. I think in some sense. It's very tempting as a politician to want to hand out a check. It's fun handing out checks and compared to the process of getting the tax code right or the labor regulations, those are grungy, complicated things where there's lots of trade-offs and so forth. So often people tend to move immediately to the handing out the check part without doing the table setting part. And, you know, that almost invariably ends up being a substantial mistake.
0: Okay. So I, I we'll just invite you then, as a final question, to give us the five to ten top issues to think about and to take into consideration for um, especially transformative innovation policies.
1: Yeah, well, I think the answer is going to vary a little bit but with where you are and where the stage of development is in terms of what would be the crucial things for a list. But at a high level, I think that certainly thinking carefully about people policies and saying, What are both the incentives and disincentives to labor mobility, both nationally and internationally? I think the issues around geography in terms of saying, as you alluded to before, that while we clearly as policymakers want to share the wealth and make sure that everyone in the nation is prosperous, how do we, you know, take account of the fact that innovation tends to be and entrepreneurship tend to be a very concentrated kind of activity um thinking through the um, ability of people to get access to capital, which partially is some aspects of table setting, which is to say, how does one think about the role of taxes, ability of institutions and individuals to invest in entrepreneurial firms and the like? And then turning to policy interventions, we are really do seem to be the market failures and what are the ways in which we could envision uh, addressing them? And then finally, sort of a reality check in terms of saying, are there mistakes in terms of what we're doing? Are there holes and omissions? Can we learn something from the experience of other nations, both about what to do as well as what mistakes to avoid?
0: Excellent. And I would add, as I always do, if something is not working out, stop doing it, learn from it, try something else. Professor Lerner, it's been a pleasure and we look forward to having you again. That
1: sounds great. Thank you very much. Thank you
0: very much.